Well, they give me a schedule, and if I'd look at it, I'd have probably not uh, made a fool out of myself here a little bit ago getting up here, but I thought it was time to go, and I told the preacher, that was pretty rude of him just to start singing. I came up here to preach, but anyway, then he showed me it was on the schedule. I, I love the music. Thank you for the good singing. It's uh, inspiring to me. At, uh, if a man can't preach after the kind of music you have here, he probably ought to turn in his badge, you know, because it's just, it, it's right and it's good. I really appreciate it. I was um, thinking today, you know, Isaiah, we're not going to preach from Isaiah tonight. Well, you never know, I might, but uh, that's not the plan. But, you know, in Isaiah, uh, Isaiah, he was, uh, he's the one that spoke of the, you know, the suffering Savior, and, uh, and, and Isaiah had a heavy burden, and he was a very, very, very serious prophet. But some people wouldn't know that in Isaiah, he said, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. And so he, he believed in the expressions of joy. Because he said, he has clothed me with the garment of salvation, covered me with the robe of righteousness, which is, that's you and me that are saved. And then in Isaiah 12, he said, sing unto the Lord, for he hath done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout. I'm sure he doesn't mean that, but he said it. <laughs> I'm sure he doesn't mean for people to shout over the things of God, but he said it. I'm sure it doesn't mean that. I think you agree with me. It doesn't mean that. I'm being sarcastic. I think it does mean that. Cry out and shout, thou inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. And so I remember at uh, Southwest Baptist Church, I may have shared with you before, but I, I don't know. But uh, the pastor for many years had, uh, for 29 years, had pretty much taught the people not to say amen uh, not to have emotional response such as that. Well, I, I, that's not what I see in the Word of God. That's not what I sense in the working of the Holy Spirit. So I preached about it a little bit. And, uh, so one night I was preaching away, and our music director, you'd have had to know Brother Floyd. He was a prim and proper guy, very, very good in the pulpit, uh, leading the singing and the choir, just a, a wonderful, wonderful co-worker. And Brother Floyd, I was preaching away, and he stood up right over here, uh, about where you are, brother. I'm pointing at you right there, back over there. And Floyd stood up and just started shouting, well, glory, hallelujah. And the whole congregation, you could feel, <gasps> I could, you could feel the gasp. And they thought Floyd, he, he's gone over the edge. He's gone. He, he did that twice that night. And it caused such a stir in that church. I'd been there about two years at that time. It caused such a stir. The next Wednesday night, I preached on should Floyd shout. That was the title of the sermon. <laughs> I had to deal with that. And of course, it came down to how come Floyd's the only one shouting? You got something to shout about if you're saved and you know the Lord. And I'm not just trying to create a bunch of noise or emotional stuff, but there are times I would think that when we consider uh, the gifts and the blessing of the Lord and sometimes our souls are touched and overwhelmed in, in a service by the singing or by the preaching of the Word of God. Uh, I think it's right for God's people to express, and there's a good biblical word to show your approval. Amen. That's a Bible word. That's how it's supposed to be used. Okay, we better get to Genesis. All right, let's go there to Genesis chapter 29, if you would, please. 
Last night when I said, how many of you read? I'm not going to ask it again tonight. I'll have to tell you that oftentimes if I'm doing a series in a meeting, I'll ask the people to read ahead. And last night was the largest percentage I've ever seen anywhere of people that actually read the text. That's why I did shave off about a half an hour off of that sermon last night. Aren't you glad you read it? Yeah. So anyway, but I, I really, I, I, it blessed my heart just to see. And several people tonight came in. And I don't know if it's because of their appetite for the word or their hope to shorten things a little bit. But they said, I read the text today. I read the chapter and ready to go. So here we are in the book of Genesis chapter 29. Now let's stand together and read for a bit. And if you need to remain seated, that's fine. We're going to read a few verses. If you need to sit down before I finish reading, feel free. But we're going to start in verse number one. Then Jacob went on his journey. If you were here last night, you were, we were at the beginning of that journey. Then Jacob went on his journey and came into the land of the people of the east. And he looked and behold, a well in the field and lo, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it, for out of that well they watered the flocks. And a great stone, I've got that underlined in my word, a great stone, not a stone, a great stone was upon the well's mouth. And thither were all the flocks gathered. And they, emphasized they, rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the sheep and put the stone again upon the well's mouth in his place. And Jacob said unto them, My brethren, whence be ye? And they said, Of Haran are we. Well, now he knows where he is. And he said unto them, Know ye Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. And he said unto them, Is he well? And they said, He's well. And behold, Rachel, his daughter, cometh with the sheep. <laughs> and he said, Lo, it is yet high day, neither is it time for the cattle uh, should be gathered together. Water ye the sheep and go and feed them. So Jacob is just there on the scene. And some people believe he was a Baptist preacher because immediately he's trying to tell people what to do. I mean, he just showed up and he's saying, well, here's what you ought to be doing. But nonetheless, verse 8. And they said, we cannot, that's not how we do it here, until all the flocks be gathered together, until they roll the stone from the well's mouth when we water the sheep. And while he had spake with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she kept them. And it came to pass, when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban and his mother's sheep. Now, what kind of stone was that? As a great stone. And how did they usually move that stone? They rolled it away. It was that big. Jacob saw Rachel and was somewhat motivated and he did it himself. So, so much for people to say, Jacob was a mama's boy. Esau was the man that hunted out there. And Jacob, I've actually heard preachers make fun of Jacob because he was a mama's boy. Uh, he rolled that stone away all by himself. There's no real spiritual value in that. I just 
like to mention that. So look at verse 11. Uh, Jacob kissed Rachel. This would have been the typical greeting. This is not Hollywood stuff. This is uh, Jacob greeted his uh, cousin. Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's brother and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father, Laban. And it came to pass when Laban heard the tidings of Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. And he told Laban all these things. Why he's on this journey, he just opened up to Laban. Laban said unto him, Surely thou art my bone and my flesh. And he abode with him the space of a month. And Laban said unto Jacob, Because thou art my brother, uh, related as they were, oftentimes brother is used that way, but because thou art my brother, shouldest thou therefore serve me for naught? Tell me, what shall thy wages be? And Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah was tender-eyed. People want to know, what does that mean? She was tender-eyed. Well, don't stop reading. But Rachel was beautiful. Now, do you know what tender-eyed mean? <laughs> Meant? She wasn't. I'm not going to say she was an ugly woman. I'm just saying she wasn't beautiful. So anyway, verse 17. And Leah was tender-eyed, but Rachel was beautiful and well-favored. And Jacob loved Rachel and said, I will serve thee seven years for Rachel. You talk about wages, I'll serve thee seven years for Rachel, thy younger daughter. And Laban said, it is better that I give her to thee than that I should give her to another man. Abide with me. It's a deal. And Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed unto him but a few days for the love he had to her. And Jacob said unto Laban, give me my wife. For my days are fulfilled that I may go in unto her. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. And it came to pass in the evening, um, and it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to him, and he went in unto her. And Laban gave unto his daughter Leah Zilpah, his maid for an handmaid. And it came to pass that in the morning, behold, Behold, I guess, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, What is this that thou hast done unto me? Did not I serve thee for Rachel? Wherefore then hast thou beguiled me? Laban said, It must not be so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn, fulfill her week, and we will give thee this also for the service which thou shalt serve with me yet seven other years. And Jacob did so and fulfilled her week. And he gave him Rachel, his daughter to wife, and agreed to work for another seven years. And Laban gave to Rachel his daughter Billah, his handmaid to be her maid. And he went in also unto Rachel. And he loved also Rachel more than Leah and served with him yet seven other years. Now we're going to stop our reading uh, there. And for tomorrow night, if you'd start reading right there and read chapter 30, then we'd be good to go tomorrow night. So if you want to read ahead, why, that's where we'll be tomorrow night. I want to preach to you tonight on the matter of the boomerang. Now, I know that I'm among people that uh, 
I've already had people come in and tell me, I know what this is about, because they understand the boomerang effect and such as that. That's what we want to do is, is, uh, is give, get some help, get some learning, get a reminder of the boomerang principle. Father, we are grateful again for the privilege to assemble. We pray now your blessings upon the preaching of this word, of your word and this passage. And might you work, O God, give me the freedom and the liberty to express and to proclaim and to preach your word and give your people hearing ears and open hearts, O God. And your son Jesus said more than once, if any man have ears to hear, let him hear. So I pray that we would be not only hearers, but doers of thy word. Might we profit from this time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, and God bless you. You may be seated. <clears throat> okay. That's awkward. Sorry. I've had the uh, privilege of going to Australia three different times and preaching. My wife went with me a couple of times and last time I went by myself. And so I've, I've been to Australia and one of the things that the people there in the churches and the missionaries, they want to make sure, and this is true in many places, but they want to make sure they send something home with you to remember their country. So you can imagine what they would send from Australia. No, not a kangaroo, a boomerang. And I probably had three or four boomerangs at one time, and they're in boxes, and I've probably given some away and such as that. But in all that time that I've had boomerangs, and I went over there the first time in 1993, so in all that time, I still have yet to see a boomerang actually work. I've, I've never done it. I, I didn't see it over there in Australia, and I never, I never threw a boomerang at home. I thought about it. Uh, we lived on an acre of land there and had enough land. I guess I could have done it. But I kind of uh, have a, a weird way of uh, trying to do things and messing them up or they mess me up. And I can just imagine me out there throwing that boomerang and it coming back and hurting me. So I decided, no, I, they say that's what it does. So I'm just going to live by faith and believe that's what a boomerang does. So I never to this day have seen a boomerang actually function, but I do know the boomerang principle and so do men and women and even young people and children in this place understand the principle. Jacob surely was on the receiving end of the boomerang principle. Just as a little reminder, we uh, reflect back and think about uh, Jacob, we didn't cover this, but when Jacob took the birthright from his brother Esau, and uh, Jacob had made this pottage, and his brother Esau had been out on a hunt, and when he came in, he loved uh, the pottage that uh, Jacob made, and he came in and was very hungry, and he said to Jacob, give me some of that pottage. And uh, so Jacob said, sure. And I thought, how nice would it be if Jacob would have said, you want pottage? You're my brother. Of course, they're twin brothers. You want some pottage? Sure. My pottage is your pottage. Help yourself. But that's not how Jacob operated. Jacob said, you can have some pottage. 
but it's going to cost you. What's it going to cost? The birthright. Now, we talked about Isaac kind of being given over to a fleshly appetite. We know for sure that Esau was a profane man and he was totally given over to the fleshly appetite because at this point he wanted so badly to have some of that pottage that he was willing to sell the birthright. Now you and I sit here and we think, it's our birthright, so, so what? But you had to understand their culture and live in their culture to understand how significant the birthright was from then on to a man's life. And Jacob, I'm sorry, Esau was so given over to the appetite of the flesh, he came in and he said, well, what good's the birthright going to do me if I die? And I'm going to suggest to you that if he could come in from a hunt, he probably wasn't about to die. He was probably about as close to dying as Esau, I mean, as Isaac was when he said, fix me that meal one last time before I die. And then he lived 47 years more. You understand what I'm saying? And so probably Esau was about that close to dying. He wasn't about to die. He wasn't able, uh, that uh, helpless and everything. He just gave himself over to whatever his appetite was and spiritual things or eternal things, excuse me now, valuable matters like the birthright of a household and all that goes with that. Ah, didn't mean a thing to him. Sold it. So, so Jacob is the winner. He got him. So you got to know how to play the game. You got to know how to stand up for yourself. You got to know how to get what you want. Come on. We remember when they, uh, the boys were born. You remember that Jacob was hanging onto the heel of Esau. And it was a picture of the kind of contention that would characterize his life and their life. He is fighting for position even at the time that his mother, Rebecca, gave birth. See? And, and so here he is now, and he has the occasion to deceive his, uh, to take advantage of his weak brother, and he takes advantage of him, and he, and he gets that birthright from him. Yes, sir. He got it. And then we come to the account last night, and when we read about that account, then we're talking about uh, we're talking about Jacob, uh, about Isaac, rather, uh, blessing Esau. You prepare me this meal and I will give you the blessing. Remember his mother, Rebecca says, oh, no, 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 this, is, this cannot be. Uh, this, this can't happen. We got to do something about this. And that's when they work together and they deceive the aged 143-year-old, uh, uh, 143-year-old Isaac, and they deceive him. He is partially blind, mostly blind, not able to even see and tell the difference between Jacob and Esau. And so uh, it, it turns out that Jacob pretends to be Esau, deceives his father. His father gives him the blessing, thinks he's giving Isaac the blessing. And it turns out that now Isaac is in a rage and then uh, I, I'm sorry, Esau is in a rage and Isaac is all disturbed and upset and is quaking or trembling uh, exceedingly because he's been deceived by his son who is now 75 years old and his wife who's been his wife for 97 years. What an ugly story. I said last night, chapter 27 is an ugly chapter and it indeed is. It is a sad tale. We're not just talking about some characters of the past. We're talking about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That's the family we're talking about. 
And to think of that kind of nonsense that's going on. But it was going on, all right. And so Jacob is willing to do that, to deceive his father. But you know, that's what you have to do to get what you want. If you're going to find your way in this dog-eat-dog -dog world, then you've got to figure out how to do things. You've got to figure out how to get what you want. And if it means you have to step on somebody in the way, if it means you have to take advantage of a weak, your own weak twin brother, if, if it means you have to take advantage of an old man that can't even see and can't tell the difference between one son and another because he's not able to see and he's up in years and can be deceived by goat hair and, 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 and Esau's garment put on Jacob and can't even tell the difference between them, take advantage of somebody like him. Well, that's what you have to do to get what you want. I call it the Jacob life. And at the end of our story last night, I'm going to suggest to you this, that the boomerang starts coming back. And somebody says, I don't, what do you mean the boomerang? Well, you know, just to make sure I was using this right, you know what I did? I just went to Webster's Dictionary and looked up boomerang because I didn't want to abuse the term and I didn't want to stretch it, you know. And I was surprised at what I saw. Here's the official Webster's Dictionary definition of boomerang. Boomerang, an act or utterance that reacts to the damage of its originator. Now, what do you think of that? Because it's not just a physical object that they might send home with you from Australia that the boomerang, listen to his definition again, it is an act or utterance that reacts to the damage of its originator. It means to make a miscalculation. <laughs> and, and definitely, as you look at the account here, as we move along, Jacob has now been separated from his home for the first time in his life. And I'm just telling you, he's a, he's a man 75, approximately 75 years old, never been away from home. And now he's, he's gone from home and he makes that 500 mile journey all the way to Padan Aram. It's also called Haran in the word of God. And so he makes that journey uh, apparently by himself. It appears to be by himself. And now he's separated from them. And, and he goes to this far away place. And the boomerang it's coming back in on him. I recall uh, uh, for you trying to think what it must have been like for Jacob when he took off from Beersheba, when he left his mother with all the stress and tension of the house. Because she made a play against Esau. She made a play against her own husband. Now Jacob is gone and she's there alone with them. And Jacob is by himself. We talked last night about he comes to this place called Luz, later known as Bethel. And there he is alone and he's sleeping in the open air. And he's got a rock or rocks for his pillow. And it's there that God begins to work on him and deal with him. And now he comes to Haran, and with these favorable circumstances, meets Rachel. I don't know how many of you have read it lately, but if you back up to chapter 22, it's there where uh, Abraham sent his servant to find Isaac, Rebekah. You remember that? And he sent his servant there, 
and the servant prayed and he said, Lord, I want you to make this profitable. And he goes and as soon as he goes there, he immediately meets the family and he immediately meets Rebecca and takes her back. Well, this is a very similar situation because he's supposed to go find his, uh, his mom's brother's family, Laban, that deal with Abraham and his servant. That was a nigh unto a century ago. And now uh, going back again. And Jacob goes back, and, and, and when he goes back, he says, uh, from whence are you? I think he's asking that because he probably didn't carry a map. He didn't have GPS and have all the benefits and privileges that we have in travel. And he wants to know, where am I? So he said, where are you guys from? We're from Haran. That's just where he meant to be, or paid at Aram, same place. Have you ever heard of Laban? Yeah, we know him. We know exactly who he is. In fact, his daughter's coming. I mean, can't you see the providential work and the providential care of God in this thing? And so somebody says, well, good. Now, God is blessing and God is leading him, which, by the way, while he was there at uh, the place called Luz, later called Bethel, while he was there, the Lord told him when he had that vision of the angels ascending and descending upon that ladder, a ladder that extended from earth up to heaven. And he had the promise from God, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to keep you. I'm going to lead you. I'm not going to depart from you. God said, I'm going to be with you. And now God verifies that. Yeah, because when he gets there, there he is. It's not even any effort. He just goes to the very first place where he asks, according to the scripture, uh, before he asks anybody, where am I? They say, you're in Haran. Yeah, you ask about Laban. Here comes his daughter right here with the sheep. Yeah, right there. Can't you see the hand of God at work? You can. But the boomerang effect isn't over yet. In fact, it's just begun. It's just begun. The negative effects of his conduct, the negative effects of his behavior, or let me put it this way. Uh, the fact that by word and deed, he had cast out a boomerang, it's now coming back. It's already started when he had to leave home and it's going to get stronger and stronger as we go along in this count. And even after tonight, we're not done with the boomerang effect. Yeah. Because see, God has so designed that our words and deeds are of the dynamic that what we throw out there is going to come back. That's what this is about. And in this account, we read about the case of two wives. Two wives. How many married men are in this room tonight? And when I say two wives, you think, oh, that can't be good. <laughs> no, two wives. The case of two wives. It's an incredible setting. Laban comes out. Uh, Laban comes out and he, he grabs his uh, nephew and he gives him a hug. He gives him the typical kiss on the cheek, how they would greet each other. I know I'm thankful for handshakes too, but that's the way they did it then. Uh, they greeted by the kiss on the cheek. 
And Laban comes out. I would like to think that Laban is just so glad to see uh, somebody from back where his, uh, his, uh, his uh, grandfather Abraham or his great uncle Abraham, when he was gone, and now somebody from back there where my sister is, oh, this is so good. I'd like to think that. But I gotta have, I, I gotta tell you this, you're gonna see about Laban that Jacob is gonna meet his match here. Because Laban was a self-seeking man himself. And you got to remember that when the servant of Abraham came, he brought gifts. He was loaded with silver, gold, jewels, treasures. He was loaded. And when he came, sent from Abraham to find Rebekah, he distributed those gifts out. No doubt Laban was on the receiving end of it. And now Laban is the main man. And here comes somebody else from Canaan. If you don't know Laban yet, you're going to get to know him. And here I can just see Laban. It's not just a matter of kinfolk from my sister back in Canaan. How wonderful. No, I think it's more than that. He saw an opportunity for gain. And if you don't know that about him yet, you're going to know that about him before this story's over. Yeah. So Jacob comes and, and uh, finally Laban says to him, well, uh, you know, you're my kinfolk. You're my flesh and blood. I'm convinced that you are who you say you are. Uh, you, you need to come and stay at my house. So he goes to his house for a month. And Jacob, though, 75. Now, come on, there are 70 plus year old people in this room and I'm one of them. But we got to think differently because Jacob at this particular time still had 72 years of life left. So we look at 70 plus year old people now and like I feel sometimes like, oh man, this old body is starting to wear out and things are different. Oh man, I can feel the difference and tell the difference. Jacob wasn't there yet. He still had that energy. He still had that strength. He's still ready to go. And so the month he was there, he didn't lay around sleep late every day. It was working people. They had a working ranch and farm and sheep and all of that goes with it. And Jacob already knew the business. He understood the business of shepherding. He understood the business of sheep raising. He understood it all. And so he got involved and he helped. And for one month, Laban watches him and said, you know, this guy could be good for us. And he said, uh, you know, it's not right that you're working for me with no wages. Uh, I would like to keep you around here. What can I give you? What can I pay you to stay here? I've been watching you. Jacob said, I've been watching Rachel. You want to pay me? This is the way it would have worked anyway, a dowry type thing. You want to pay me? You give me your daughter. I will work for you seven years if you will give me Rachel to be my wife. Laban, you know, he pretty much said, well, I don't have to give her away sooner or later. Anyway, might as well be used to somebody else. So sure, I'll take you up on that and you'll work. So Jacob went to work. And he worked for seven years. Now, I don't understand this part because I know when I was getting ready to get married, that, that time that we got engaged in December till May 28th seemed like forever and ever to me. But I don't know what was going on then or what's different, but I believe it was so that Jacob went to work and that seven years went just like that. And why? Because of the passion, the love he had for Rachel. That's what the Bible says. He loved that girl. He, he fell in love with her. And that seven years just went just like that. And I don't think it's insignificant that Jacob had to go to Laban and remind him the seven years is up. That's what the account says. Laban didn't come and say, well, you've earned it. Here's my daughter. No, 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 no. 
He did. No, Jacob had to go to him and say, okay, uh, time's up. And it's time for you to give me my wife, your daughter. Well, yeah, you're right. A deal's a deal. So, okay, let's get things going here. So all the arrangements were made. Their wedding would have been an evening affair. The bride would have had a veil over her face the whole day. Nobody would have seen her face. She would have had a veil. They would have had the celebration. The groom would come at the uh, proper time and uh, with all the eating and the celebration and the carrying on that goes on, uh, at such a celebration, it was a very special and wonderful time, then they would have had torches for lights, not the kind of outdoor lighting that we're used to nowadays, but it would have been that. And so they would have gone through their celebration. They would have gone through the drinking and the eating and all of that. And then finally at the end, uh, there would be some kind of an agreement or ceremony. And then the man would take uh, his bride into the place that he had prepared for her. That's what he would do. He would have prepared a place. And then when they went into that place, Jacob took his, what he thought was his bride, into that place and that would consummate the ceremony and the marriage and they would come together in a physical union then and she is lawfully his wife. And all that takes place. And I know people, you know, I understand. People read that and say, how could he not know it was Leah? Well, let's give credit where credit's due. This was not Hollywood. He didn't know her breath. He didn't know her kisses. He didn't know her physical makeup. He didn't know any of that. When he woke up the next morning, I started to give the title to this sermon. Hey, this ain't Rachel. Because when he woke up, it wasn't the one that was beautiful. Now you can do whatever you want to with tender eye. I know what I think about it, but you're free to think about it however you want to. But it wasn't the, it was the one that was tender eyed. It was not the one that was beautiful. And can you imagine, I mean, just try to, just try to imagine. Here is the one that you are passionate about and that you love, that you have had an agreement for, for seven years forevermore. For seven years, and you wake up and realize, I have been deceived. I have been tricked. And Jacob wakes up and he says, what is this? And he says, I, can, I mean, come on, just use your imagination. And how do you think he approached the Laban? Laban, come here, I need to talk to you just a minute. I don't think so. I think he is approaching Laban and he is saying, what is this that you have done to me? What kind of a rogue are you? What kind of a ruthless individual are you? What kind of heart do you have? You can do this through your own flesh and blood. I am your sister's son. This is something that you're doing to your own daughter, Rachel, who is supposed to be my wife. And you're using your daughter Leah and you're using them to play your kind of a silly game here. What kind of a person are you? How are you that could, what kind of man are you that you could treat family like you're treating family? You rogue, hard-hearted, cruel man. And Laban has an answer for him. Look at it in verse 26. Laban said, may I paraphrase? I'm doing the preaching, I guess I can. Laban says, look boy, I don't know how you do it where you came from, 
But here we honor the right of the firstborn. <laughs> I'm going to run that by one more time. Some of you don't appreciate this like you should. Look, boy, I don't know how it is where you came from. But here we honor the right of the firstborn. And it wasn't even possible. You should have known. It wasn't even possible for me to give you Rachel instead of Leah. Because Leah is the firstborn. And she would be, therefore, of necessity, the first to be given away. You should have known that. You may do it differently where you're from. Well, excuse me, Jacob definitely did it differently. He got the birthright from his brother. He got the blessing that by deceit that should have belonged to, that his dad meant to have to his brother. Of course, Jacob had, I'm just saying, everything that Jacob had done to this point is starting to come back right now. And can you hear him saying, what a hypocrite to say, how can you do family members this way? How can you treat your own daughter this way? How can you treat your mother's son this way? Well, Jacob, we have a question for you. How could you treat your weak and frail brother that way, morally and spiritually depraved and weak, and you take advantage of everything for your own personal gain. How could you treat your old daddy that way? He was blind and not even able to see, and you deceived him. I'm just saying right now, my friend, when he woke up and it was Leah, the boomerang didn't almost hit him, boom. It got him full force right there. Wow. Well, that's it. We're going to continue on with the story tomorrow night. But don't leave yet. Because what we need to do is stop and ask ourselves the question. How am I going to face the choices and decisions of my life? Because you have two choices. You can, are you listening to this now? You can live the Jacob life or you can live the Jesus life. You have two choices. In the decisions and choices that you make in this life, you can either be a Jacob or Jesus. The Jacob way or the Jacob life or the Jesus life. Now, <clears throat> let me give you, I, I wrote them down here. And so that I don't forget or lose or go off on a pig trail somewhere. I want to give you the details of the Jacob life. The Jacob life is all about self-promotion. Why did you do Esau that way with the birthright? Well, I wanted the birthright. It's what I had to do to get the birthright. He was the oldest. He had it, so I had to get it. <laughs> Why did you do Esau that way on that blessing? I wanted the blessing, that's why. It's about self-promotion. The Jacob life, excuse me just a second, the Jacob life is always about the promotion of self. Now let's not act like we don't know that this goes on uh, in human nature. It is a major part of culture in the United States of America right now. Back a few years ago now, uh, we had a basketball player at Oklahoma City by the name of Kevin Durant. And on July the 4th of whatever year that was, Kevin Durant decided that he was going to leave Oklahoma City and he was going to go play for the Golden State Warriors. 
All right. And so all the fans in Oklahoma City were terribly upset. Kevin Durant turned his back on him. This is the team. This is the company that moved from Seattle. This is the team that moved and gave him a chance. The fans adored him. And he was a hero. MVP played for the NBA finals. Should have won it, except he blew it at the end and stuff like that. But anyway, he made this choice. I am going to leave Oklahoma City and I'm going to go there. And it caused a big uproar in the NBA world, the sports world, and everybody was uh, giving their opinions and everything. And they asked Kevin Durant, why is it you finally decided to leave Oklahoma City and go to the Golden State Warriors? And he said, my father, who, by the way, had not been a part of his life uh, through his upbringing and his childhood and his young adult life, his father had not been a part of it. But when he became an NBA star, all of a sudden his father somehow was a major part of his life. And his father told him, he said, my dad said these words to me. And he told where he said it and the point of the circumstance. But my dad said these words to me. He said, son, sometimes to be a real man, you have to be very selfish. And, you know, he said, I knew my dad was right. And you know what a lot of sportscasters said? Well, you know, that's right. That's that's right. And you know what the majority of our culture would say? Well, yeah, if that's what you, if it's all about you. So in order, <laughs> in order to be a real man, you have to learn to be very selfish. Now, come on, if you've got an ounce of spirituality and you think, ooh, that grates against everything that is in us. That even bothers a lot of people that don't even know God at all or care. Uh, yeah, th that's what he said. Well, that's Jacob. All about himself. Self-promotes. That's the Jacob life. Uh, he's callous to sin. You lied to your dad. Well, I mean, you know, no, four times. If you study careful, maybe you see five times. You lied to your own dad. Yeah, well, I mean, some, that's what you have to do sometimes. In order to get where you want to be, if you're promoting yourself and you're carrying the mail, then you got to do what you got to do. And the way that I saw it at that particular time is if I tell my dad the truth, this isn't going to get me anywhere. But if I tell my dad that line, he swallows it. I'm moving on. Callous to sin. A third part of the Jacob life. Use your strengths to run over those that don't have those strengths. Use your strength to take advantage of the weak, which is what he did. Esau, weak. Isaac, old and weak and spiritually passive. Prime candidate to be taken advantage of. And he did it. Didn't miss his opportunity. No, sir. I believe that right is not always in order. Believe that doing the right thing or what everybody considers right is not even realistic. Sometimes you have to make exceptions and do what is commonly accepted as wrong and do it anyway. Because that's how you play the game. Number five, be insensitive to hurting others. But do you realize what Esau's going to think as he comes to his senses a little later and he had the birthright and now he doesn't have it? <laughs> like that's my problem? 
That's his problem, not my problem. Is everybody ready? Be insensitive to taking advantage of the week. Do you know what you're doing to your own father? I don't have time to stop and think about it. I'm moving on. My mother said, do this and do this, and I'm with her, and this is how I get the blessing. And so do you know that this is going to, if your mother, if your father finds out his wife of 97 years has deceived him like that, and you, his son at age 75, have manipulated and used him like that? He said, you're going nowhere if you stand around and worry about other people's feelings. Number six. You got to know how to play both sides of the issue. You know, you got to go know how to go along. You got to know how to get along. And then at the right time, you make your move. Number seven, always fight for your own ambitions. Protect yourself. That's called the Jacob life. And may I say to you that not all the people that live the Jacob life never go to church. Some people that play the Jacob life stand behind pulpits. Some people that play the Jacob life are deacons in churches. Some of them got to be deacons by playing the Jacob life. So you're down on deacons too. No, I mean, no. I'm absolutely not. I'm thankful for the deacons that I got to serve with. Very thankful. I'm just saying. It's possible. Sometimes uh, those that live the Jacob life wouldn't think of missing a revival service, even on a Monday night. So it's not like just, it's not just like, yeah, them people out there living the Jacob life. Yeah, well, we don't have much to say to them and they're not listening anyway. But this lives in the Word of God to address the people of God. The Word of God is to be preached so that the saints might see themselves. The pastor mentioned last night, the Word of God is a mirror. We look at it and we see ourselves. And if you and I are honest, I said you and I, if we're honest with each other, we've already acknowledged there's more of Jacob in me than I realize. There's more of Jacob in me than I want to admit. And there's a, even if, the, even if it is subdued and comes under the control of the Holy Spirit, still that part of our flesh, that fallen nature in us, that old man that we don't put off till we get our glorified bodies, hallelujah, what a time that's going to be, till we're made in his own image. I mean, until that time, we're going to have to fight the Jacob life. Because we'd really like to have things our way. We really would. So you can choose the Jacob life. Or you can choose the Jesus life. I, I've got it written down. I don't think I have to read it, but I'll get it just to make sure. And you'll probably recognize the Jesus life. And you'll recognize the Jesus life as the Beatitudes. Here's the Jesus life. Blessed are the poor in spirit. See, excuse me just a second. The Jacob life is self-made man. The Jacob life is I can do this and I will do whatever I have to do to get where I want to be. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. 
which doesn't have to do with somebody that's beat down and has no life in them. That's not what poor in spirit is. Blessed is the person who recognizes that he is dependent upon God for everything. The person who understands his own helplessness and his own inability. Jesus said, and I take this literally, he said, without me, ye can do nothing. And if you read your Bible carefully, you'll come to the same conclusion I've come to. I, I don't even draw another breath without God. My heart doesn't beat another time without God. In Him, I live and move and have my brain, being. And my life is no different than that of Belshazzar when Daniel told him, your very breath is in His hand. Well, so is yours and so is mine. We are utterly dependent upon Him for everything. Blessed is the person that is poor in spirit that recognizes his own or her own inabilities, his or her own helplessness, his or her utter dependence upon God. Excuse me just a second. Jacob says, I can do this. I got it. I got it. The Jesus life says, I need thee every hour. Or maybe you've revised it in your prayers like I have in my prayers when singing it to the Lord. I need thee every minute of every hour. And then I revised it again. I need thee every second of every minute of every hour. There's not a day, a time, an event, a time of life. There's never a time we don't need him. Amen. Jesus' life is to live with that awareness. I said to live day to day to day to day with our awareness of our utter dependence upon Him. That's the Jesus life. Vastly different from the Jacob life. Jesus life is this. Blessed are they that mourn. Not like people mourn all over the world over the same things. You know, the fires in Hawaii and the earthquakes in other parts of the world where people die and where there's terrorism and all of this and people perish and die and there's mourning over that. That's common to people everywhere. Does everybody listen to this? That's not what Jesus is talking about. When he said, blessed are they that mourn. It has to do with those that are sensitive to sin. That unlike the Jacob life that justifies sin and that justifies wrong, Unlike that, we're sensitive to sin. There's a sensitivity to doing what is not right in the eyes of God. There is sensitivity about sinning against God. Excuse me just a second. There is an awareness when we sin that we're not right with God. We don't justify the sin. We don't compare it. We don't, well, compared to most people, I've, okay, so it wasn't right. But compared to most people, I'm still doing pretty good. That's, that's not the Jesus life. That's more of the Jacob life. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are those that are mournful over their sin against a righteous and holy God. That's why I preached yesterday and your pastor preaches and you know from reading your Bible, we got to keep a clear focus of God. If we don't keep a clear focus of the high and lofty nature of God and see him as he is, then we will fail to see ourselves as we are. And we will justify sin against a righteous and holy God. But Jesus' life is this, mourning over our sin. Not just the mess our sin has made, but the fact we've sinned against God. Mm -hmm. That's the Jesus' life, yeah. Meekness. 
Use your strengths to run over people that are weak, that get in your way, that can help you get what you need. If you have to step on them, then you have to step on them. If it's your brother, step on your brother. If it's your aged father, step on your aged father. Get what you want. But Jesus said, blessed are the meek. Those who are not weak, but they take their strengths and their gifts and their abilities and commit them to his authority. We're not going to use the abilities God gave us to manipulate people and to get our way and to advance our own uh, reputation or our own cause. No, 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 no. We're not going to do that. We're going to take the strengths that he's given us and submit them to his authority so they'll actually be used for his own glory and not our own. Is everybody with me on this? Amen. Yeah, that's the Jesus life. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. Hunger and thirst after righteousness. How many of you think Jacob was hungry too? When Esau came in and said he was hungry, how many of you believe Jacob was hungry too? They were just hungry for different things. Come on. That's really good. That's a good point. I've never said it that way before. And I'm using it on you the first time and you're just sitting there. That's a very good point. I'm just saying. Absolutely. Uh, hungering and thirsting. Yeah, Jacob was hungry too. But he's hungry for what? He's hungry for advancement. He's hungry for self-promotion. He's hungry for what he wants out of his life. But blessed are they that hunger and thirst after rightness before God. What is right by God. Wanting to do, desiring to do, excuse me. Hungering to please God and do what's right in his sight. Blessed are the merciful. Jacob, your dad's old. Have mercy on him. <laughs> and miss this blessing? Uh, believe me, I don't enjoy doing this to my dad. <laughs> Can't you hear him saying something like, you, you got to believe me, I don't like doing this to my dad. But it's what I have to do to get what I want. It's what my mama told me to do too. She knows because she's helping God make sure the right person gets the blessing. Some of you may have sat in completely. That's another point. <laughs> Blessed are the pure in heart. Pure in heart, you know what that means? No divide. Pure in heart. No admixture. No trying to walk on both sides of the fence at the same time. That's the Jesus life. Blessed are the peacemakers. Jacob, was he a peacemaker? <laughs> no. He contributed to the confusion that was already in the home. He already had a passive father and a bossy mother. They already had issues. And Jacob at 75 years of age, you'd think being maybe the grandson of Abraham, maybe he'd have some kind of a spiritual bone in his body. But he didn't, he, no, 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 he wasn't a peacemaker. He contributed to the confusion. And he caused more when he went over to be with his uncle Laban. Yeah. Think about it. Yeah. Blessed are the peacemakers. Clarence Sexton told me something one time. He said, Brother Sam, spiritual minded people take problems and make them smaller. Carnal, selfish minded people take problems and they get bigger. Think about that. How was it going in the household of Isaac and Rebecca? How were things going? How'd it go? How's it going to go in the life of Jacob and his wife, Leah, and Rachel? And Bella? And Zilpah? How's it going to go? The problem gets bigger and bigger and bigger. You'll see tomorrow night. 
And always defend yourself. Don't let anybody persecute you. Don't let anybody use you. Don't let anybody take advantage of you. You stand your ground and defend yourself and yours. That's it. So that's the Jacob life and the Jesus life. Can I? I'm about done. Huge contrast. But it's your choice. It's called by inspiration of the Holy Ghost and the beloved James. It's called wisdom from above and wisdom that is earthly, sensual, and devilish. It's the same thing as the Jacob life and the Jesus life. The wisdom that is from above is the Jesus life. Read James chapter 3. And the wisdom that is not from above is called the Jacob life. And the difference between the see, You can choose which life. You don't choose the consequences. I said you can choose which wisdom you will use. That from above or that which is from beneath. That which is from above that is pure and righteous and good. Or the wisdom that is not from above. That is earthly, sensual, and devilish. That was Jacob. You can choose. But you don't choose the consequences. That's done for you. I said, that's done for you. You don't choose that. I'm going to do things my way. Pull the shoulder away. I'm going to live the way I want to live. You can do that. You can walk out the door. Some of you that are young people and teenagers, you can get to the time in your life and you've been here and preaching and you've been under conviction. Finally, you come to the place and say, I'm done with that. I'm at the age. I don't have to go to church anymore. I'm going to go do my thing. You can do that. But you won't choose the results of turning your back on the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life. You won't choose that. Not at all. You won't. Or you can choose, I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. And all you got to do is read the Bible and you'll like the consequences. Because <laughs> they're already determined for you. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness. Hey, I mean, blessings, heaven. Oh, yes. Yeah. So which is it? Our heads are bowed and eyes closed for just a moment.